Waiting brings apprehension. Wishing brings apprehension. I don't know what it is that you are wishing for this particular moment, but wishing oftentimes brings a great deal of apprehension into our minds and our hearts. Wishing is this hope, if you will. I'm going to use that term in the wrong sense for, for right now. It's this hope that something might occur. It's I really want it to occur. I can't guarantee that it's going to happen, but I wish that this would happen. It is something inside that I may long for even. It may be a deep-seated yearning and desire, but I'm not really certain of the outcome. And so I am wishing and just wishing and just wishing, and oftentimes that brings apprehension. There are literally this morning millions of people in the state of Florida, in the state of Alabama, and in the state of Texas wishing for a certain outcome this afternoon. Now, I didn't even have to tell you what I'm talking about. And we all went there. There's about 12 of you out there going, I have no idea what he's saying. And that's because you have a balanced, healthy life. <laughs> the rest of us who worship this little oblong ball have a problem this afternoon. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I promise you, I guarantee you, there are many folks that are stressing, wringing of hands. They are praying with every fiber of their being, even though they haven't prayed in the last 12 years. Wishing brings apprehension. If you don't know what your college entrance exams uh, look like, if you don't know what your SAT, your ACT, if that's strong enough, you don't know if your GPA is high enough, and so you send out an application that goes out to five particular schools, and you want an acceptance letter to come. And all of this December, we're going to have millions of students, millions of seniors all across America that are going to be wishing that some school would embrace them. But they don't have a guaranteed outcome. Now, mom and dad, and in particular, grandma and granddad, if you don't know this, I mean this, uh, this is, I am not kidding, this is not sarcastic, and this is not even condescending. If you don't know what the modern day stress is for seniors trying to get into high school, um, it is nothing like it was when we were in school. It is out of control. That is not a statement against any person in school right now. I'm telling you, the system itself has grown to be a place of tremendous stress and anxiety. And I mean it when I tell you, we should be praying for every senior that's out there. Tremendous amount of apprehension over not knowing what is going to happen in the future. Have you got some relational issues going on right now? And you've got a counselor that's advising you to do this, and they're saying, Mom, if you would handle it this way, and son, if you would handle it this way, and you're trying to handle things in a better way, but you just don't know what that other person is going to do. They're unpredictable. You have a company that says, if you hit a certain target, then you might be eligible for a bonus. And I was thinking about all this. There's so many aspects of life in which we have certain wishes that we 
would want to make. I wish this would happen. I wish that would happen, etc. I wish that the rain would have stopped yesterday. But God in his infinite wisdom decided he was not going to do that. Wishing brings apprehension. Listen, biblical hope brings expectation. And here's the difference between wishing and, 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 and hope. Biblical hope is about an, expecta- an expectation. It's not only a reasonable expectation. It's not something that I'm pretty sure is going to happen. It is something that is absolutely going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So while the time creates a certain amount of tension in our minds and in our hearts, a certain amount of anxiety results from, from it not being fulfilled yet, biblical hope is a certain expectation about what God will do. It is this certain expectation that God is going to do what he said it is that he's going to do. So here's what Advent is all about. Advent was, nobody knows when it actually started. It started several years ago, most likely when the calendar was finally fixed on December 25th as being Jesus' birthday, which is not entirely likely. It's likely he was born sometime in September, but it doesn't matter. It's just a birthday. And so we're celebrating this day. So when that finally got set, then most likely the church started celebrating around that time. And they would spend the first two weeks looking at Christ's return. And they would spend the second two weeks looking at Christ's first advent or when he came in person in there. Now, by the time we get to the fifth or sixth centuries, we know that the church is celebrating it formally at this point. But Advent is a time in which the church all over the world sets aside these four weeks. Now, not every church will do it, but the church all over the world does this. Sets aside time to say, we want to look at these four topics. And the first topic we look at is this topic of hope. Can I ask you, what is it right now that you have hope in? And what is it that you know you should have hope in, but you can't quite get yourself there with the hope just yet? What is it that you're struggling with that you know you should have hope because God has promised this is going to happen. He's guaranteed this is going to happen. He may not have fulfilled it just yet in the timing. And then what is it that right now you say, I I need hope? Uh, Fill in the blank just a moment for us. Um, uh, Without hope, according to the scriptures, um, our hearts shrivel up and die. If, if we don't have a confident expectation that God is going to do something in the future and it's just a matter of time, we are going to shrivel up spiritually and die. And so I would encourage us this very week, would you do an inventory? Would you step back? Would you take some time, put down some actual notes? What has God promised to you that you need to remember that he's promised because it affects the way that we live today. Here's an example. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now, the skeptics all throughout time now have been saying, you foolish Christians. He said he was going to come back. He even said it in front of a group of people, and he made the statement, hey, everybody here, everybody here is not going to die before I come back again. That's not exactly what he said. But the critics and the skeptics have been saying this all along. Jesus is coming back. And the fact that he hasn't shown up yet does not mean he's not coming back. It just means 
that he hasn't come back yet. If you, and there's no perfect illustration to this, but if you were running out of money in your bank account, hypothetically speaking, none of us would ever, that would ever happen to us. But if you were running out of money in your bank account, would it or would it not bring you peace to know that Elon Musk said, I want you to know, I want you to do the best that you can to make ends meet. However, if you come up short this month, I just want you to know your bank account has now been tied into mine. And anything that you spend over, I'm going to pay for. Would that bring you peace or not? If it doesn't bring you peace, then you're a cyborg. Knowing that someone with that kind of funds, but here's the problem. There might be a day in which the economy collapses or Elon Musk, something happens. There's a chance that Elon Musk could actually go bankrupt. It's a small chance, but there is a chance. Here's what God says to us. By my name's sake, I'm telling you, I'm coming back. And when I come back, all of the wrongs that are going on right now are going to be made right. And when I come back, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my presence in such a manner that you, along with all of the believers throughout all of history, are going to be walking through the streets with me. My presence is going to be felt by you to such a degree that you will never again doubt if I'm near. There will be no sun or moon or stars because the Lamb of glory will be shining in all of his magnificence. And there'll never be a time in which somebody looking around saying, is God going to show up? Is God going to? There will no longer be the Psalms being cited by the people saying, how long, O Lord? It'll just be us saying, hey, Jesus. Now, if you knew that all of the wrongs in your life would be made right in the next two weeks, would it bring you peace? Of course it would. Here's what God has said. All the wrongs are going to be made right. But I'm not going to tell you when it's going to be made right. So biblical hope is us choosing to believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So I would ask you again, where do you need hope? What in your life right now needs hope? If you've got your Bibles, open with me to 1 Peter First Peter is towards the end of the Bible. It is a uh, book that was written by Peter to the first century Christians, and it was written for the very specific purpose of encouraging those who were in a tremendous amount of uh, persecution, trial, etc. And so anytime that you in your life are experiencing um, the absence of hope, I would encourage you to come back to the book of First Peter. Read it. That's what it was written specifically for, was folks who were walking through difficult times. But Peter's the author, in honor of God's word, would you stand? I'm going to read verses 3 um, all the way through uh, uh, 9 in there. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Now, we're going to work through this uh, far more quickly than we normally would. We will not go into the depth that we normally would to explain Scripture because we want to get to one driving thought in here. If we were to divide this passage up, we would divide it up, uh, I would divide it this way. There's the guarantee of salvation that takes place in verses 3 through 5, and there's the joy of salvation which takes place in verses 6 through 9. In verse 3, he tells us that the guarantee of salvation is guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, the reason we know there's going to be ultimate salvation is because Jesus overcame death. The New Testament authors write about this over and over and over again. It's a concept that if you've spent any amount of time in church, you're familiar with. The reason that our salvation is guaranteed is not because we obey the rules. The reason our salvation is guaranteed is not because we, we show improvement over time. The reason our salvation is guaranteed is not because there's been even this change of heart and I've now shown God how serious I am about the faith. The reason our salvation is guaranteed is because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And faith in him gives us salvation. It says that it is kept in heaven in verse 4. But notice that it says in here that this inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. It cannot be touched. Have you ever questioned your salvation? Have you ever questioned whether or not you really know God? Have you ever wondered if God's really going to hang on to you? You ever wondered if you did something where he finally just said, that's it, enough. I, I've, I've forgiven you the previous 300 times, but I'm not doing it anymore. That salvation, according to Peter, by the work of Jesus Christ, it is now kept in heaven. It cannot be touched by anything on the earth, including our own sin. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It says also that it's kept by God's power. In verse 5, God's power is being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. It is not you hanging on to this salvation. It's not your pastor hanging on to this salvation. It's not your spouse hanging on to this salvation. It's not your kids. It's not your grandkids. It's not your Bible. The person hanging on to your salvation, it is the power of the Almighty God that is holding on to you. You are too weak to hang on to God. I am too weak to hang on to God. My faith oftentimes looked like this, and yet Jesus still says, faith this size right here can actually move mountains, not because of the size of my faith, or the robustness of my faith, but because the power of God in this teeny tiny amount of faith can move mountains. God's power is guarding your salvation. We've said it here a hundred times. We'll say it a hundred times more. You cannot out the cross. It's too big. 
God's too powerful. And he's far too capable of hanging on to those who even at times try to run away from him. Verses 6 through 9, it talks about the joy of our salvation. In verse 6, it tells us that we can have joy even though we are currently grieved through trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I like the fact that Peter leaves this wide open. There are all kinds of trials that we will go through. Some experience trials that many of us would say, I have no idea how they even get up in the morning. We may have some trials that we wonder um, at times if we'll be able to make it to tomorrow. And then we have other kinds of trials that seem very minor um, uh, in perspective. There's trials of various kinds. He says we can have joy in our salvation, even though going through these types of trials. Please hear me on this. If you have joy in the midst of a trial, it does not mean that you're making light of your trial. It doesn't mean that you are minimizing things. It just means that you're looking in the right direction. See, let's say that a trial that's before us is right here, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and it causes angst, and it is difficult to deal with, not just for me, but for my wife, children, friends, etc. I've got this trial. I can either choose to stare at this trial or I can choose to walk through it, to look at it, to glance at it, to, to give it the attention that it needs. Also, though, while looking up, consistent, God, what do you want me to do in the midst of this, through this, over this, around this? God, do you want me to walk through this? God, do you want me to pause? Do you want me to go to the right or the left? When my eyes are fixed upon the author and finisher of my faith, and they are, they are, I, I'm glancing every now and then at the trial. I can actually acknowledge the trial for what it's worth, and I can have joy in the midst of salvation, knowing that at some point God's going to make all the wrongs in my life right. I can look with a perspective years down the road and say, God, I know this is hard right now, but all oh, the time is coming. <laughs> the time is coming. It says we can have joy in salvation even though we're grieved by trials. Verse 7 says that we know that God is going to grow our faith in him. The testedness, I'm sorry, the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Here's what it means, is that God is going to continue to grow us and mold us and shape us into the image of his Son. It is good and it is right for us to acknowledge that we have not yet arrived, but it is also good and right for us to acknowledge that God has done a work in you. He's done a work in me. He's done a work in each of us. We're not the same people we were 10 years ago, are we? There are some things that have happened in my life in the last two years that I don't think I would have handled very well had it happened 12 years ago. There are some things in my prayer life that I think even five years ago I would not have handled properly had it not been for God growing me in the last few years. And you know what he used to grow me through those last few, these last few years? Is the difficulty, the trial, et cetera, that came with all things COVID. All of the angst and the heartache and, and the craziness of that all around. God used that as a time to force me to my knees and to listen to him in a way that I had not listened to him previously. Over the years, I've been very disciplined with a prayer list. 
I've got a time in the morning in which I pray and a time in the evening in which I pray. That doesn't make me good or right. It doesn't make me bad or, or wrong. It, it, it's just my practice and habit. And over the years, the easiest thing for me to do is to pray through a list and to get disciplined to pray through that list while missing the heart of what prayer actually is. Beginning in 2020, praying it oftentimes through tears over circumstances that were both corporate and personal in nature caused me to listen to God in a way that I hadn't listened to him in quite some time. Peter tells us, we can be assured God's not going to waste those trials. He's not going to waste hardship. He's going to grow our faith in the process. And last thing to say on this about our faith is that please understand, when we grow in our faith, it is oftentimes in our faith we're growing in which we sense God's presence less. Please hear that. When we are growing in our faith, it is oftentimes we are sensing his presence and his nearness less. Because what takes more faith? Does it take more faith to draw near to God, to trust God when I see him right here and I hear him so loud and I just sense he's right here? Or does it take more faith to pursue him, to trust him, to keep moving forward when I hear a faint voice and I don't see him and I don't hear him as loudly as I would like? Hebrews tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when God grows us in our faith, it is oftentimes, oftentimes, when we sense him less. Keep in mind the ultimate prize. The ultimate prize when Christ returns, we are going to never question his presence again. We're going to see him. Last thing he tells us in verses 8 and 9 is that we should know that God will grow our love for him. He will grow our faith in him, he tells us that in verse 7. But in 8 and 9, he tells us God's going to grow our love for him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. I love this phrase. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. This love that we have oftentimes is, cannot be expressed adequately. And our love for God is going to increase over time. Peter tells us this. God's the one who's going to do the heavy lifting on it. He's going to draw us in. He's going to make himself more and more and more um, alluring. What we are responsible for is to continue to respond to him. He calls. He invites. He asks us to come. Our job is to, is to respond to him, to show up, to meet, to pray, to listen, to talk. To grow our love. There. Now, the final point, which is really where we've been leading to. Notice what Peter says specifically about this hope. He says that this hope is a living hope. It's not a theoretical hope. And this is where all analogies break down because go back to Elon Musk. It would be great to know that I had access to his bank account. Not that I could just spend everything I wanted, but knowing that 
that he was guaranteeing whatever it is that I want to buy. He was guaranteeing it. But he's asked me to be faithful in the process. He's asked me to be frugal. He's asked me to be, to be a good steward along the way. Yes, that would be great. But do you know what I wouldn't have? I wouldn't have a lasting relationship with Elon Musk. I'd have his bank account. I'd have some blessings that come with that. But I wouldn't have the greatest blessing of all, and that is knowing him. What Peter tells us here is that we have a living hope. It is the person of Jesus that is the actual hope that we have. Our hope is not just in what he has done, is doing, and will do. Our hope is actually in him specifically. Our hope is not in a particular outcome. Our hope is in a person. When you got married, if you are married, did you get married with the intentions of, I just cannot wait to get access to that bank account? Don't answer that out loud. Did, did you get married and, and the, the first thought was, I cannot wait for us to plan our calendars together. And I can't wait for us to share a 401k. And, and I can't wait to do I mean, did you think about how the chores would be divided up in the house? Was that what got you excited? Or was it, I can't wait to be married to that person. I want to grow old with that person. You probably didn't get married with the intentions and the idea of, you know what, I can't wait to see how much better of a person I'm going to be by the time we get 25 years into this marriage because I know that she's really organized and detailed and she's going to help me develop along the way. And I'm going to, So it is with Christ. We entered into this Christian relationship because we were convinced, our eyes were open, that the person of Jesus was the most glorious human being that's ever existed. And we came to the realization that we could not fix things on our own. And we really believed that the sin problem in our life was too big to overcome. And so when we looked at all the solutions that were out there, we saw this religion offers this, and this offers this, and this is a better improve, a behavior improvement program, and this over here offers. And the only one that stood out to us is the fact that there's this one guy who claims to have been God himself and then made himself like us, set aside some of his Shekinah glory so that we could experience him showing up on the earth, and then he lived the life that we couldn't live. He did everything that we were supposed to do. Every attitude, every motive, every word, every action was done in the way that we would like to do it ourselves but can't. And then he was put to death because he had the audacity to claim that he was God and was the only solution that was out there for the sin problem in the world. And he said that he was going to die. He kept telling his followers all along, the closer he got to it, he kept telling them, you guys, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back from the dead. And so he dies on a Friday, and then on Sunday, mysteriously, that grave is open. And there are people that are claiming to have seen him physically. And this guy says, I can handle all of your problems. 
And I want you to come to me just as you are. Not trying to fix yourself up first and making yourself acceptable to me, but come just as you are. And then as you come, I'm going to clean you up along the way. We started out in this relationship with this person. Has it turned into something else for you? Has your marriage turned into something else? Has parenting turned into something else? Has a friendship turned into something else? If your relationship with Jesus has turned into something else, let me speak very confidently on behalf of him right now because of everything that he has said. Come home. Jesus says it this way, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. He is our living hope.